Jason Marin, and with me is my co-host, Teresa Unfried. Hi, Jason. Welcome back, Teresa. Thank you for having me back. Um, can you remind us all where people can find some information about you and your company online? Certainly. Uh, Taj Event Productions can be found at TajEventProductions.com. We tweet at Taj Events, and we are on Facebook under Taj Event Productions. All right, thank you. Now, our guest this time is Chris Lee. He has been a lighting designer for over 25 years. He's lit literally innumerable productions on Broadway, off-Broadway, on the West End, off the West End, on cruise ships, in amusement parks. He's lit things on television. He's lit things that happen in real life and are broadcast on television. Uh, Chris, I'll just stop there and, and say welcome. Well, hey, guys. Hi. Thank you for having me, both of you. It's good to meet you. I'm glad you're here. I'm very excited to hear about my life in lighting. <laughs> um, you know, I stopped there because I realized I could probably spend the entire hour just describing things that you've done. My career has been an interesting career. I never had um, a path that I was thinking of going on. You know, I went to Ithaca College back in the 80s and did get a degree in lighting design and just knew I always wanted to be in theater. I was a performer for a very young age. And I knew that I had a passion for theater, not necessarily a passion or a love for performing. I never, I always enjoy, I never enjoyed being on stage. I never enjoyed that instant gratification. I really enjoyed uh, not even being backstage, but being back of house when the show was finally up and seeing an audience reaction to something they didn't even know why they were reacting to. And also the love of being in the room with uh, a group of people with a certain time frame that no matter, you talk about a production for months ahead of time, but no matter what, you have a six-day, two-week to come up with whatever it's going to be. And it could be what you talked about, or the most wonderful thing was when it wasn't anything you thought it was going to be. But uh, that the collaboration, that's the exciting part for me. And from theater, I think it taught me all the vocabulary I needed to kind of do other things. Because for me, my job no matter if it's television or theater or corporate, it all comes back to story and what is the story, what's being told. And that translates across all the mediums, in my opinion. So do you feel like that's been the thing, the thing that's carried you through all the things you've done? Yeah, I think, yeah, and for me as a designer, it answers all my questions. Uh, when I see a great show, um, like look at Streetcar Need Desire. For me, you know, the setup of that whole show um, is that Blanche is a liar. You find that out in the first five minutes when she comes in and says, uh, is offered a drink. She says, I don't drink, but maybe just this time. And it tells you exactly what that character's about. And that, that for me, is what that whole show is, is, is all those characters' illusions. But for me, to design, I have to be able to boil it down to almost a sentence, you know. And then everything is, all decisions for me are made from that. Now, it may alter. Sometimes that idea doesn't work, but it's a starting point for everything. And how that translates for corporate, I uh, do a lot of work for Ford and things like that. But, you know, there's always the, um, the idea of what that certain event is going to be. And that's not dictated by me, it's dictated by the client. But you always have that sentence or that idea that that particular event is going to have to translate. So I look at the, the worlds very similarly. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, can you walk us through the, the sort of the beginning of your career? You know, what, how did you discover theater? What were those shows that you saw that really fired your imagination? And then how did you, you know, how did you end up at Ithaca? Uh, a couple of things. So we were very lucky in our little Irish Catholic town in <laughs> south of Boston uh, to have a gentleman who had a real passion for theater and a real passion for Fosse. And it was called Young People's Summer Theater. And you were you could get, join when you were 13, and you had to get out when you were 18. And we did Chicago. We did On the 20th Century, um, Damn Yankees. And it really, if, if you think, I remember the, when we did Chicago, and obviously you had to provide all your own costumes. It's, and like, it's like they were trying to convince you to do this I like, as a career. <laughs> and I remember to the town's reaction, because this list went out for all the chorus girls, and it's Chicago. 
of what they should be bringing. And again, this is 19, early 1980s Boston. And the, the town I come from, they call it the Irish Riviera because basically 95% of the town's Irish Catholic. And this list went out saying, we need nighties, we need stockings, <laughs> and for, you know, this production of Chicago. But it intrigued me like you wouldn't believe that in really the work of Bob Fosse. And I was a performer at that time. I didn't do anything technical. I didn't even know what any of that did. Um, and But... At that same, I think it was in 1985, Bob Fosse's last show was doing out-of-town tryouts in Boston, and it was called Big Deal. The gentleman who ran that theater invited me to go to one of the previews, and the whole team was still there. Jules Fisher was there, and Bob was running up and down the aisles, and it, it was, but I, to this day, I remember the opening moment of the show, and it was the simplest thing, and it, it was, I think the song was Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries. And the performer, I forget her name, God bless her, I can't remember, but show started with one downlight, and she just looked down on the first verse saying, life is just a bowl of cherries, and then there's um, a build at the second phrase, and she just turned her face up, no fall spot, and I was like, and the whole audience was like, and I went, oh my God, that's lighting. And so if you ask me what my first kind of aha moment about lighting was, it was that show, and also just seeing the activity in the theater in a preview on a brand new show, and honestly, even at that young age, I still knew it wasn't working. They, they, you could see the show still needed shape, but, uh, you know, it was amazing. And at one point I was on the island, there was Bob Fosse next to me, you know. And wow. I, God bless, God rest his soul, he passed away about, you know, six months later. But I, it changed my life. And that Jules Fisher lighting cue. Absolutely. Told God, I told Jules that. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, yeah, we fought about the beginning of the show and it ended up staying in. Uh, but like this was many years later and I was at a dinner and uh, we were, I was just like, Jules, I know everybody in the world has told you this, but I can tell you it's the exact moment I wanted to be a line designer. <laughs> and he's still, he's so humble about it. And he, you know, he really. Oh, I know. That's the amazing thing about Between him and Beverly yeah. and Theron, they've just basically created a whole generation of what lighting designers are. And to think of, think of themselves as artists and not production electricians. Right. Uh, so, yeah, because I know that was, I mean, that they were part of the transitional group mm -hmm. that changed that. You know, so you saw Jules before Fisher Moran Stone and before there was all the diversification when he was lighting everything. Absolutely. And I think he, talking about his, the corporate side of his company, he was one of the first, well, you have Imero Fiorentino, who basically was the godfather of television lighting, who then branched himself out to just really start what we think of the modern-day corporate design firms. He was the first. And then Jules then, they actually went to college together at Carnegie Mellon many, many years ago. And then Jules then also did the same thing. And he, he expanded this out, and then he expanded the corporate division out to doing architecture and things like that. So, yeah, he really, you know, those uh, companies didn't exist then, and they invented them and basically taught people what light could do outside theater. And we know when you look at products, you look at advertising, you look at commercials, it's all, you look at Martha Stewart. Why, mm -hmm. is she, why does it never look like that in your house? <laughs> because <laughs> it is lit so beautifully. And, you know, that's a whole nother... Uh, Someday my kitchen will be lit like that. I know. And, the, and her cakes, Always. they have four lights it's on the them. The whole thing. It's so beautiful. all the glistening shows up. <laughs> it's dimensional. It has backlight, side Absolutely. light, never front light. And the, never. Jib, and the jib shadow. Anyway. Well. Uh, um, <laughs> so you saw it. Yeah. Then what happened? Well, I also at the time, so I was kind of jumping around when I was young. I also played tuba and baritone and euphonium. I was in uh, drum and bugle corps. What's a euphonium? A euphonium is uh, halfway between a um, baritone and a trumpet, I okay. believe. It's been ages. And so I also, uh, I was a very good tuba player. So I got offered, when I went to go look at colleges, I auditioned for doing the conservatory music. And, and at the time I had kind of, begun to switch from a performer in theater to, uh, I didn't know lighting. I just know I wanted to be somewhere back there. And um, so I had continued my tuba, and then I also did a design for the Mass High School Drama Festival and won an award. And that goes a long way when you're looking at undergraduate colleges. For so, real? I know, I know. And it, what was it, Canadian Gothic? Oh. Oh, yes. It was, a, it was this wonderful play about... Um, a mother, a father, and a daughter. And the daughter gets pregnant, and she has an abortion. 
Now, this plays at the Mass High School Drama Festival. Wow. Oh, my god. Where you have all the Catholic schools. Of course. And the yeah. nuns in an uproar. Why is this being presented? Oh Either god. way, I got a little award. And... Um, and then I uh, also auditioned for New England Conservative Music. So I had gotten a scholarship to New England Conservative Music, and then I had gotten a scholarship to Ithaca College. And I just tried to, you know, I don't know if you know tubas at all, but a mirrorphone is basically the concert tuba that you would then carry around for the rest of your life. And it's a big thing to carry around. And I literally made a decision. I don't, I don't want to do I it. I can't envision my life like that. I'm, great, go play the world stages maybe. But then afterwards, you have to carry that giant thing around with you. <laughs> so I went off to Ithaca. I know whenever I see the uh, folks with a, with a double bass on the subway, I was like, oh, God bless them. man. You think you're you, you, you think you finished that. work and now I have to carry that on the subway? Yeah. 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 So that kind of... Maybe subconsciously I knew I had to be in theater, but that was like my definitive, okay, I'm making a decision because I don't want to carry this thing for the next 40 years of my life. Yeah, and so I went off to Ithaca. And at the time, Ithaca, and it still is a great school, but what was different from um, back in the 80s to now is it really was a conservatory situation. You took liberal arts classes from about 8 in the morning to 11, and then you were in a rep company. And they had no graduate program, so you were designing, I mean, you were doing, you know, I think we had a 15-show season divvied among the students, and it was boot camp, which was which was fabulous because you did, and they made you do everything, and then your last your last two years you kind of focused in on what uh, discipline you wanted to be in, but uh, I did everything, learned about everything. I continued dance there, you know. I took modern and jazz and tap, and I used it. And I always just I thought as a lighting designer, I really should know the vocabulary that my collaborators be working with. So I chose to be the six foot four guy doing passe exercises and bar awesome. exercises. Pictures, pictures, <laughs> but pictures. But it has, it has <laughs> helped me like you wouldn't believe. I, I, there are very few lighting designers now who can count shows in eight, which I feel is incredibly important when you're doing musicals. Absolutely. Because, you know, it cuts out the, the communication. Like, you know, I work a lot with Jerry Mitchell, and if it was one of the great things, like I want it on the fourth, eight, on the three. Great, done. Next. I wish more, more uh, designers would uh, kind of get an education on dance and music. A lot, of, a lot of younger designers who come and work with me, um, they don't have that background, which I think if you are going to go and do musicals, you really should have that background. Well, yes. I mean, yeah. it, it seems that seems fairly logical, too. If you're you going to get into it yeah. if that's going to be what you want to do. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of designers that start in plays, yes. and then as their careers progress, they, they do a dance they, they show, do, they do or a musical, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I can see, you know, if I don't know a designer yet, and I go see a show, I can tell right away if they, not that that this is not a good or bad thing, right? But the point of view and how uh, shows are cued, I can tell that they started in plays. Well, tell me about that. Well, I think <laughs> now I want to know. Well. Um, I think there is a vernacular that happens in a musical. I think that um, great design for musical basically supports and pushes the music without overpowering the actors. And I, f I, f I find a lot of people who do plays let the words do a lot of the work, but I think in music, musicals especially, uh, design plays a huge element, especially if you don't have a lot of money for sets of costumes. You know, I, so yeah. many musicals I do, it's like, oh, don't worry, lighting will take care of that. You know, I put a lot more cues in my shows. I think if you have 16 dancers dancing up there and they are, you know, doing hits on one, four, eight, and the lights aren't, not that you should swing the lights out in the room, not that you should flash them in the audience's eyes, but you've got to heighten and make them look like stars. You enhance the great work they're already doing, and if you do a cue just right, they look just that much better. And I, I find a lot of people just kind of do bare minimum when they're doing shows. And I'll sit in my seat, and if there isn't a cue, I'll just... <laughs> I, I, I know what you mean. I have thought, there should be a cue there. No, oh, there should be a cue there. No, there should be a cue there. But then again, I've, I've programmed on shows where we have done that, which is... Look, you know, it, it, at some point it gets kind of like, I, like okay, how many cues are in this song now? I, mean, I think yeah. a great example of that is uh, the original production of Ragtime. And do you guys remember that show? 
Graziella Danielle's choreography, Jules Fisher's lighting. Yeah. And it was Jules' first show with moving lights. And the story is the integration of the immigrants. You know, you have the, the upper-class whites, then the blacks arrive, the Jews arrive. And they basically, the dance is that they are separated to the very end of the number. But they are constantly moving around the stage. And it was so unbelievable to watch how the lighting palettes were carried through this number. And they were completely separate with all the movement. And, that, and then at the very last, but there must have been, I mean, I think the num opening number was eight minutes long. And he had that thing cute, like you wouldn't believe. And then at the last moment, they all integrate to be basically the story of America. And you'd think that that would be a big, muddy mosh pit of color. Yeah. But the way he did it, it was like, boom. And then they strike that last pose for the end of the number. And it's glorious. But there, there were so many cues in that because there's dissidence. You have the three musical themes happening at the same time. And, and the way Graziel choreographed it, you know, they were focusing on left, right, center. And you'd think that it could get heavy handed. But if the, if the structure and the story and the music is there, you're really just helping them along with it. Well, I love that we're talking about musicals, and we have. We have some. Oh, warming she's up. warming up over here. God bless her. I know. <laughs> be a thing. <laughs> so yeah. So then I, I, I like everyone does uh, uh, when you go off from undergrad, went to Yale, um, interviewed. Everyone does that. <laughs> everyone does that, <laughs> or at least a lot of people do. And um, lovely Jennifer Tipson said to me, "Are you sure you want to be a lighting designer?" <laughs> And I said, I think so. And she goes, well, if you don't know, then you shouldn't be doing this. And at the time, I was really kind of taken aback by it. But then a couple of years later, I was like, I realized she was absolutely right. Because this is a tough business. And you got to love doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I was not at that time. Because I spent about a couple of years in New York you know, bartending when I first came. And I didn't really do much theater. And I kind of fell into like, oh, it's New York and all that stuff. And then I realized I missed it. And so, yeah, I just started. I also had another, I had assisted uh, Andy Bridge from, I don't even remember Andy Bridge from Phantom of the Opera, original lighting designer, mm -hmm. and uh, assisted him. And we finished the project, and he goes, you know what? You're a really bad assistant. Oh. <laughs> he, he goes, oh, no. you should be a designer. He goes, you want to sit there, don't you? And he was referring to, you know, the tech table in the hot seat. He goes, you want that, right? And I was like, absolutely. He goes, yeah, because you, I could see the whole time, you know. You're not an assistant. Just go and do it. Find a way to do it. If you love it, and I and I never assisted ever again, which is the thing because there's many paths to you know getting sure. into the business. But I took his advice, and I just like we had talked about earlier, um, lots of anything anybody wanted me to do down in the East Village, I did for years, you know. And I luckily through a connection at the college, uh, Ithaca College is a very strong TVR department, and I had met a girl there, and she wasn't even in theater. And Mayor Fiorentino and Associates uh, was looking for an assistant lighting designer, and their focus was television. And I had no idea anything about television. But she recommended me. I went in, and I got the job. And I spent um, four years working with Alan Edelman, who I, I believe is uh, one of the most aesthetic television designers working in the industry. It, his work is stunning. But I learned uh, all about television. I sat down in, in studio, and you know, my job was to go maintain their designs day to day. You know, Maury Povich and VH1 wraparounds, which are the lead in lead outs of all back in the day when they used to play music videos. When I had music. And um, and got a great education in, in television there, and also uh, corporate. From that, I also had um, at the time uh, Fiorentino Associates was hit on hard times in terms of their corporate division. The Carabina was on the rise, Imagination. These very large, global corporate industrial firms were kind of coming into business, and they weren't really ready for it. So I was on the tail end of that company, kind of going to the autumn years, let's just say. And I had started working on Land, Ro Land, Ro uh, Land, Rover? Land Rover Jaguar at the time and doing all their trade shows and booths and things like that. And when the company folded, uh, I was still uh, had good relationships with them, and then Ford bought them. And also at the time, Imagination was opening up an office in New York. So I, and I go down, they were still building the office down in, on uh, Franklin Street and met uh, Paul Mackay, who is the creative director worldwide, in t-shirt and he's all sweaty, he was moving boxes. 
And he's like, oh, so you do the lighting for Land Rover Jaguar. And I'm like, yeah, I do. You know, I'd love to, you know, if you guys have an opportunity. He goes, heard you know Andy Bridge. I was like, yeah, I know Andy Bridge. He goes, he and I used to do sweep, sweep stages at the National Theater. And I was like, oh, that's great. He's like, well, well you sound fine. Why don't you come? <laughs> it was like a five-minute conversation. And then and he, they hired me. And, all, and I've always stayed freelance. I've never kind of locked myself, with the exception of um, Fiorentino. I've never gone full-time with a company because I just didn't want to have to turn down other work. So I, I still work for them today, and that's 15 years later. But from that, I built a very large corporate design firm on the side, which has allowed me to do a lot of other things. And then I've continued in television. I usually get called for television jobs that are uh, not studio work, but live event stuff. Where oh, we really? go in, Yeah, a lot of comedy special, a lot of concerts, where we go in and take a theater over. And they wanted to have that theatrical vocabulary, but still not have to fight with a theater designer who doesn't know how to balance the fall spots and do color temperature. Right. Yeah. Hey, so the first couple of years after grad school, so you know, I like? went to Ithaca for undergrad. No, I'm sorry. And then I went to UC Irvine for a split second. I, I was at Ithaca, and they offered me a scholarship out to go to UC Irvine. And it's just a very different way of doing theater in that school, and much slower. And so I left after the first year, and then went to NYU. And I was supposed to go through NYU in two years rather than the three. And I got to the spring of uh, my first year, and they let me know that I have to. They wouldn't be able to honor that promise, and I'd have to go for two more years. And I said, thank you very much. And uh, I literally said, Lloyd, thank you. John, thank you very much. And I just left. <laughs> I didn't finish out the rest of the year because I was like, I, and now it's super expensive. But back then, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I can't do another year and yeah. still live in New York. And also, I think I was done with hearing about it. I think I needed to start doing it, you know. So, And I think I'm a... I've taught myself a lot. I don't really have a mentor. I didn't have someone. Paul Gallo, he was at Lincoln Center with Andre Bishop and, you know, Mr. Vivid and Drood. And he, he's a great, great lighting designer. But again, he taught me more about the passion for the business and less about lighting. So I kind of like have made my career about, I'll just go figure it out. I always say yes and I'll figure it out later. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do? <laughs> How else are you going to make a living? And hopefully you're smart enough to. Make sure it's taken care of by the time the client or the director or the choreographer gets there. And, and they look at you and go, wow, you do know what you're doing. And you go, <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, I do. And then my assistant Denise, who <laughs> has been with me forever, just smiles and goes, oh, God, again. <laughs> uh, so then what happened? So, the, so then what happened? So no, I just started working a lot. Um, I connected up with uh, Jerry Mitchell uh, he was had created an event called Broadway Bears many years ago. Um, he had started at Splash, and he and five dancers from Will Rogers Follies went down with a bucket and stripped for the crowd and collected money for AIDS. And he had then kind of it built and built and built, went around to I don't know, Club USA and all these clubs in New York, the Palladium. Mm -hmm. and well, because it, this, this would be the time right after Broadway was decimated yeah. by AIDS. Oh, absolutely. Like where we lost a generation. A whole it. generation. Yeah. And so um, he was working on Tommy Toon's new show, Busker Alley, and my friend Larry from Ithaca uh, was also in the course of that, and they met, and Larry was a dancer, but he was also a scenic designer. And they wanted to kind of take Broadway Bears up a notch, and so Larry was hired, or not hired, volunteer, because nobody's hired there, um, to do the set. And then I met with Jerry, who was still uh, at the time an assistant choreographer for Tommy Toon, and he said, great, come light it. And I remember uh, Don Holder was supposed to do it for him, and then Don got a show. So then I went and did it. And the first one we did was at the Palladium, which is now sadly gone. Mm -hmm. but uh, And it still had the original VL1000 that was there for Club MTV. And we went in and went in that morning and created a show. And then I continued with that with Jerry for about 10 years. And then through that, started doing a... Uh, a lot of designing for Jerry for concerts and theater and all that stuff. And then when Jerry decided to step down as the director of the show, but stay on as producer, I then stepped down also. And then a whole new generation of people have come in to make it one of the most successful events in New York. So I continued with that, you know, and then we did the live version of it or the um, legit version of it in Vegas called Peep Show. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and, and then I continued still working with other directors, you know, I'm, um, 
one of my tromping grounds signature theater down in D.C. And, you know, I've done, I think, over 40 shows for them. Or I forget what it is at this point. And with Eric Schaefer and Joe Calarco. And, That's fabulous. Uh, I love that theater. We started that in a garage, literally a garage with 15-foot ceilings. And then on Saturday matinees, next to it was the other garage, which was a body shop. So, oh, you, hear, you know, you're doing Sweeney Todd and you're just hearing, <laughs> and then about five years ago, I think, or six years ago, we moved into their brand new facility and uh, very, very lucky to have that relationship. I mean, it's a wonderful place to go. Um, and then I, you know, I continue on uh, with a longstanding relationship I have with Disney, which has been going on for about 15 years now. What, you, what do you like for Disney? Let's see. I started doing cruise ship shows for them. And uh, moved on to theme park. So currently, um, yeah, so we're about to go over to Tokyo uh, for uh, their partner, Oriental Land Company, and creating a new show for them um, based off of King Triton's concert, which is a portion of uh, Little Mermaid. And this is a 360-degree show that happens above your head. And unfortunately, that's all I can say at this point. And I hope you all come to Tokyo because it's going to be spectacular. It sounds amazing. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you it's a $56 million show wow. that is 11 minutes long. You know, I feel like a lot of people that listen to this are going to understand how you talk with a theatrical designer about what their show is need, needs to look like, what, their, what expectations they have. Can you tell us about the conversations you have with the producers of a show like that? It doesn't have to be that one specifically, but a show like that. And how you meet and manage their expectations. Disney is, um, I think, because this started all the way back to Walt Disney. And his starting point for every meeting was, what is the story we're trying to tell? And that has continued on through however many years Disney has been there. So I work for a section of the company called um, Walt Disney Imagineering Creative Entertainment. And they're a wonderful group of folks. And the difference is they fall under the auspices of Imagineering. And Imagineering are the folks that you think of when you go to a park and they've created the streets, mm. the rides, and you know the ride technology, and costuming within the park. Creative Technology is a company within the company that creates live stage shows. And sometimes they overlap on parades, but really live stage shows. And that can be on the cruise lines and it can be in the parks. And that um, they service, because how it works outside the U.S. is um, there's a partner that opens up the park with them. So they service them internally. And the reason Disney does that is they still keep control of all the creative intent behind everything. So the conversations um, that happen with creative entertainment are always story based. They go, they, it's kind of where I've learned how to sum up a show in a sentence and that's what they do. And everything goes back to that. Now that sentence may change in a four year process. They may find it's not exactly what they wanted, but they usually can, t the story they're going to tell, whether it be the journey of discovering oneself, it's those kinds of phrases and sentences that drive what the show is. Because if you think of how large the corporation is, and we think that Disney has so many characters and so many stories they could tell, in reality, when you have that larger company and you're filling that order, you have to be careful because a lot of the content is repeated. Right. And they do not like to repeat the exact same thing. So there's many ways to tell a different story with the same characters and the same music. So And so the creative process, we, we do Blue Sky for an extended period of time. And that is where nobody from the technical department or budgeting comes into play. They want to hear what you could create. They don't care how much it costs. And they want to see what that is. And we go through, you know, for Tokyo, the Blue Sky project, uh, section of the project lasted uh, two years. And that's, that sounds like fun. Oh, it is You fun. can just do anything? You can do anything. Anything. And they, they support you like you wouldn't believe. Oh, that's awesome. And this is, you know, from my end, it's a little less at that stage. It's really about the director and the creative director working together to create new music, if needed. Sure. Or rearrange music. Or what is the idea and what is the location and what is the building. And the one in Tokyo, we literally destroyed a building and put a new building up because we had to. If you come, you'll see why. Um, <laughs> so we go through that for about two years. And then they sign off on that and say, okay, this is the show we want. Now, how much is it going to cost? 
So then you go through, um, what do they call it? They call it, we call it the cutabration. And that's the celebration of everything that you thought you were going to do. But now you have to be just a little bit smarter and figure out how to still get the same ideas across and uh, deliver it on budget, which in that, that process takes about another year and a half. That doesn't sound as much fun. It, it, you know, it, some of the greatest <laughs> stuff comes out when you have to like really when you have to think about how you're it doing it. The air, yeah. Find the same way to tell the moment of the story, but in another way. And, you know, some, you know, and if there's an idea that they really love, they always find a way to do it. And they did on this one, too. Okay. So, And so, yeah, and we just continue on with that. And then you really go through the nuts and bolts stage of it, the bidding process. And, you know, and luckily, I, I, there's a great team already in place that's been there for years. I just have to deliver my lighting release. And then all of a sudden, you know, you just watch and you get pictures and it looks exactly as you drew it, which is always the amazing wow. thing to me. Um, I don't know if that answered the question. It, it helped. It helped. <laughs> <laughs> so the entire team is more like you than like a corporate entity. Oh, let, you know what? This might help clarify it. So let me tell you a little bit more cre about creative entertainment. Is the folks that work there, how I got in there was a gal named Shelby Jiggins who worked at the public in 1990. So everybody in there is from theater. Okay, yeah. That, 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 that does happen. And yeah, then everybody in WDI is from architecture. And they think everybody is all oh, those crazy theater people. So yes, the vocabulary is already there amongst everybody. And you know, a lot of the, one of the newest creative directors there just came from Hubbard Street Dance. Okay. You know, and uh, Annie Hamburger. How creative entertainment was formed was when Michael Eisner came in. He wanted the shows not to feel so much like theme park shows. So his okay. his thought process was, was to. This was the time that he also they formed uh, Disney theatricals. And he wanted a presence on Broadway. So he really went out of his way to find... And the prime example of this thought is um, Julie Taymor. Right. Now, Julie was making mud masks in Africa and on fellowships everywhere and doing the Green Bird at Lincoln Center. Right. And he, for some reason, just thought of her. For the, you know, let's do this. And... Um, that same kind of mindset was how creative entertainment was started with Annie Hamburger. Annie was an avant-garde artist and avant-garde director in New York City. And he really just wanted to go that far out of the box to counteract kind of the rigidity that had to stay there with um, Imagineering. And so then she kind of filled her coffers with people that she had worked with for years. And they get it. So you've also done uh, shows like that on cruise ships. Yeah, and I think the difference between the two experiences is that Disney is an entertainment company that got in the cruise line business, and the other companies are cruise lines that try to... Bring entertainment. I'm sorry, not try to edit that out. <laughs> they are uh, cruise lines. They're companies that are cruise lines that create entertainment, and there's a big difference between those two things. And you know, I worked on... Disney now has four ships, two classics and two new ships. And I had worked on the two classic ships. And then I basically did facility design and um, design for the actual onstage shows for the two new ships they built. And those two theaters could be equal to what a uh, Broadway theaters. theater is. Yeah. They're incredible. And they built them that way because they want their sh they want their guests to feel like they're getting a Broadway show. So the cruise ships you've worked on also have have been solely the Disney ones as well. No, no, I've also you I have also done others. You've done line. okay, yes. okay. Yes, so yes. you have another. Yeah, I had um, actually a gentleman who had worked at Disney, uh, at Disney Cruise Lines, moved to Norwegian Cruise Lines. He was very nice to bring me on board for some oh, of that stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I hear those are a lot of fun. They are. <laughs> Hard to do. They're, yeah, at again, times. Yeah. At times, yeah, depending upon yeah. which. And it's funny because at Disney, when you go do a show, your, your schedule is set up like you would take a show. You have the time. When, um, on Norwegian, it's a bit different of how they set it up. Um, and you're just kind of uh, get in the middle of the night and get it done as fast as you can. <laughs> right. Not that the quality is any different or better, but uh, it's just more challenges sure. in how the the structure of the of the company is done. So in, in the in the act of designing a love minute show, I imagine there are certain things that are similar to designing for a sort of more standard theatrical. But I'm guessing the tech process is different. Well, for our um, show in Tokyo. The complete show is pre-vis for all scenery uh, back in January of last year. Uh, my program and I pre-vis the whole show in August. And we've just I've also been asked on this project, there's a lot of video in it, and I've also um, done the video lighting design. And oh. what I mean by that is wow. um, it's all 
uh, computer generated animatics, and mm -hmm. uh, I basically lit them with my uh, set designer. So we just finished that up actually uh, this past week. So the whole show, in theory, is plug and play right now. They have all the information there. They've we've, they've already rung out the whole show uh, for automation, and it's running beautifully. And they'll plug our show file in, and we'll go clean it up. So it's all just done little tweaks. Ahead of time. It's basically tweaks. In your yeah. experience, how far can you get pre-visualization? Pre pre I've heard some people say seventy percent. I've heard some people say eighty percent. What's your experience? I think it depends on how it's set up. I think if you have a director with a really clear vision and they know way ahead of time, which our director is, and she's done this before, then I think you're closer to 70%. Because my big thing is, you know, what it is, the other 30%, which I think is the most important part, is the eye in the room. I mean, everything changes once you actually see it. I think it's a great tool to structure out the show. We know what the time code is. We know I know what all my presets and focuses are going to be. That is great use of that time. All my color mixing is done ahead of time. I mean, Disney's great. They bring in Hudson gave us samples of all the scenery and brought into a room. We get all the colors ahead of time. Um, there's an element in the show that uh, is how do I say this? Without giving it away. Yeah. Don't give anything away. <laughs> there is an element in the show that is a talkback system in scenery. So we were able to do all our work uh, to help lighting play with that system ahead of time. And But then it, what the great thing is, is now when we go over there, now it's making it really beautiful and balancing it. You have to balance out lighting to the video. What's, you know, we want... Our goal is that video does not look like video in the show. The video sure. is an extension of the scenery and the story. So that's what we're going to spend our time doing. That sounds great. Really, I want to go to Tokyo. Yeah, now. seriously. <laughs> I, I already wanted to go. I to I think Tokyo we should make casting and... light pay for us to go to Tokyo. I think you should come over <laughs> for the big old opening. <laughs> I can get you in free. That's about all I can do. <laughs> Listen, I want to go to Tokyo. Very. I, I'm it actually afraid be, to go to Tokyo because be I'm awesome. afraid that I would just not have not any, ever come any home. money left. I'm afraid I would just stay there until I had zero. It's a balance. Wonder, and let me the, tell you, the people are. The Amazing. work ethic there is so phenomenal, and our partner there is uh, Oriental Land Company, and the other part of me on this project is a gentleman by the name of Nagi-san Hidaki. And uh, his attention to detail and his wanting it to be the best it can be, it really is a, a, you know, you work a lot, and that doesn't always happen. And I just feel so lucky that they have such a passion for the project also, and, you know, again, I haven't been over since this August, and they hadn't started loading in, but I get pictures, and I'm like, You've got to be kidding me. That looks exactly like what we thought it was going to be. Oh, my god! And that's the exciting. Like, that's that's exciting. This. So how do you bring the, the theatrical viewpoint that you have, especially with everything being about the story you're trying to tell, even if it's just one sentence, how do you bring that to the to the more corporate side of things, you know, for the Ford shows, um, the, you know, for the auto, auto shows or things you do for imagination? I think that goes in um, kind of a range. Uh, the rule in at least automotive is the car is the star. So no matter what, you got to make sure that car looks like a million bucks. It's got to look like you'd see it on television or in a print ad. Some of them are a million bucks. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's one element that you always is kind of you're, you're working around. So you, that's your starting point in any one of those events. I, I think, you know, uh, I look at the, uh, the Mustang launch in, you know, 1998 or something, and it was like supercharged. So what is supercharged? What, what is that to the consumer? What's that idea? You know, it's an ethereal idea, and it's a mysterious idea. It's an idea that has a lot of power and energy behind it. So uh, for, for the actual reveal of the car, you know, we basically made a – this is 98, so I thought I was pretty fancy back then. We made a wall of light that we could – basically, you see it all the time now – but basically not reveal the car because this sense of energy and pull and focus and power and all, and it built and built and built and built and built, and built until the car then came like shooting downstage and then you saw it. It's, I think it's simple ideas like that. And that's how you can sell a concept and project using these sort of simple ideas. Yes. And I think especially with corporate, uh, let's define corporate. I'd say not, not Disney, but with clients like Canon or Ericsson or Ford, simpler is better, less is more. Mm -hmm. They want, you know, you can get them lost and confused in the minutiae of lighting, which they never want to hear, mm -hmm. nor should they. They just want to know what the simple idea is going to be, and they want to see that when they get there. Now, what's, um, what's a good project for us to look deeply at? One that you haven't signed an NDA for, you know, one that you can actually talk about the process from 
initial meeting to drawing to installation. We can look at uh, Fame Becomes Me on Broadway. Okay. Fame Becomes Me was a project uh, created by Martin Short, Scott Whitman, and uh, Mark Shaman. And it was based off of Marty Short's Christmas parties, which are infamous. And he used to have uh, his Christmas parties in L.A. And part of going to his party was you, you didn't have to, but you were encouraged to perform. And whatever your talent was, if you were a magician, if you were a juggler, if you were an actor, singer, and that's how they celebrated the holidays. Hmm. And Mark and Scott uh, used to go to that all the time. And so Marty had this idea. like, well, what if I did the show based around that? And then it basically was a framework for what I consider to be like a 70s variety show. And so um, it was a celebration of Marty and all, all of his talents and his strengths and with a score by Mark and Scott and Scott directed. And I've known Martin Scott for many, many years from the early time in New York. And they very graciously uh, asked me to join in with set designer Scott Pask. And so Scott's um, take on it, which uh, I think turned out to be wonderfully brilliant, was it was a 70s variety show. And it was heightened, I don't know if you remember, like the, the Cher variety show, with the giant Cher across the, you know? <laughs> so he didn't want to be that heavy-handed, but what Scott did was basically create a custom wallpaper that was MS, Martin Trenton. It was just like everywhere. And any, you know, but the joke was that, you know, Marty can never get, you know, he could never supposedly in a comical way deliver like those stars. So the show started, you know, you, you this gorgeous set is revealed. It's his living room. There's a Christmas tree and there's a staircase. And, you know, this big build in the, in the overture and Marty comes out. But what happens is he comes out and the only you see his feet because they didn't build the set right. And he's hiding behind the mask. You know, it's that kind <laughs> of sight gag right. that Scott Pask was so brilliant in, in getting into the show. And um, so, yeah, and my job was to, I mean, that the take on that was to do a musical, but to also give that feel of, a, you know, what we remember those variety shows being. And I don't know if, I don't know how old you all are, but, you know, we had the whole <laughs> I watched Donnie a lot of that Marie stuff. Yeah. Share, and so there was a lot of that, you know, color, just yeah. color for no, why is that color? No reason no whatsoever. No reason for it. <laughs> and it's, you know, and and the there were some, uh, a lot of it was a celebration of Broadway. And so there were takes on, you know, Tommy Toon and Wicked. And so I, I, I tend to say I celebrated Kenny Posner a little bit when we had our Wicked section. I just totally like, oh, here's Kenny Posner Green. And we're just going <laughs> to, you know, because why two girls down here singing Wicked. Not really Wicked, a take on Wicked. But, but the process for that was, um, again, I know Scott and Mark. And so it there wasn't a lot to talk about. Like I, I get their sense of humor and I get their jokes. Now I had never met Marty before, but he's very much of the same ilk. I mean, really that process was us getting out of the way or out of town. Like we had kind of put a framework in for them to work in. And one of my jobs was not to kind of confine him at all in what I do mm. and let him, cause you can't confine Martin short. You just got to let him go at it. And if he wants to all of a sudden run all the way upstage, you better be prepared, even though you didn't light up. The, it was that kind of freedom he, he and the other performers needed to have. So we had certain sections of the show that were really choreographed and really lit. And then they kind of bookended these very broad, big scenes for the Marty just to, like, you know, go to town. Lose it, yeah. yeah. And so, and then there was a great experience with Scott and... You know, just Scott's such a master of space and manipulating space and scale and, and color. So I just kind of, my job was, to, again, just to support him. Lighting was not a big focus in that show. It, uh, my job was to make sure everyone felt comfortable on stage. Everyone felt like a star. Including, you know, there was only a cast of seven. And to make it as beautiful as possible. I think I succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> and, to, and to give that little television sense. There was one scene that actually was, did you, either of you see it? I, I did not. Yeah. So there's the second act that Marty dies. I'm not giving away the show closed. Marty dies at the end of the first act and comes back as an angel. Um, but before he dies, um, there's a hospital room scene with uh, Jimmy Gluck and Marty's supposed to be dead, you know, dying in the in the bed next to him. And he decided to have a talk show in his hospital room. <laughs> so, oh so we made this whole, like, made it feel like, literally like, you know, a David Letterman or something. Right. Like <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
So, what, so how how did how did you come to all of that? And, you know, what, what were the conversations like that that led you to all of those decisions? They were com- the, the set, I came in late in the project. There were a lot of people who came in late because uh, Scott and Marty and Mark had been talking about this for years. So they already really had a good sense of what they were doing. And then Scott was brought in, and it was going to be done like in the fall, and then they had to push it. So everything kind of got. I was really coming in really late in the game. So. I gleaned as much as I could, but it, it was pretty obvious to me. I didn't. Nobody really had to tell me. Like I, I went to the to the run through and got the joke and understood, and then saw Scott set, you know. And it was such a. Everybody was working on so many other things at the time. We all met in San Francisco and kind of crossed our fingers and hoped we all were on the same page, and we were. So there wasn't a lot of. Uh, it wasn't like major design conversations like you would in other shows. Okay. Like so- you talk about like. Uh, Shakespeare's R&J, which is a show that I've done for many years and done the West End in Tokyo. Now, that experience with Joe Calarco is a complete collaborative process okay. every moment of the show. What does that mean in reality? I mean, in, in practice, what does that mean? Yeah. And again, this is a director. He went to Ithaca. Mm-hmm. He was on my electrics crew when I was at Ithaca. And he is uh, now a, a director. And Joe Calarco uh, has been very much influenced by Anne Bogart and Viewpoints. And viewpoints, um, and i sorry to anybody out there, including Ann Bogart, if I say this incorrectly. My understanding of viewpoints is actors can be completely aware of the space around them and the relationship of the space around them. And it, you can direct in this style. You could also use it as an exercise. Joe t- chooses to incorporate it into a lot of the shows he does. So it is about space, and it's about dividing space and relationships in space. So R&J was done originally in like a storefront in the East Village. And what Joe did was he took Romeo and Juliet and he made it for four men. He incorporated Sonnets and Midsummer Night's Dream and made um, a new version. And Hmm. it is a story that is about four boys in a boarding school, a repressed boarding school, who meet at night to read Shakespeare. And then what happens in the journey they go on. And it's all done in Shakespeare. But he hit Joe rearranged the whole thing. And it happens on a platform with chairs and a red silk, and that's it. The whole show really is lighting. And so it, it took us long. We did it. I didn't do the original production in New York. It was like, I don't even think there was lighting, to be honest. I think there was a bunch of just lights on stage, and they performed it. And so then we went to, we were invited to, I wasn't invited. Joe was invited to take the show to uh, the Bath Shakespeare Festival. And that's when I came on board, and he reconceived the show. And that's where Lighting then became like another character in the play. Lighting was the repression. Lighting was the illumination. Lighting mm-hmm. was the fear. And at that same time, the show was originally done proscenium with a platform. And we've done it in many different configurations. The most recent was being in the round. But Joe's use of the space and use of the square with four men and a chair to make every setting in the show um, really relies on lighting to be your partner, your friend. Again, we have done over 30 shows together, so I know how we've done many shows similar to kind of this kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, but this was the first one we ever did. So finding that, that sounds like was, fun. and we only had two days at Bath to do it, because there were like nine other invited companies shows, yeah. to do it. So it was Fast and Furious. But I knew I know visually what he's talking. It's all dance. The whole show was sidelight, backlight, not a spot of front. I mean, we had front light, but I never put it up. Right. And he loves the sculpting of bodies, and he's a director who understands light and will see it and alter the actors so it's a beautiful stage picture, which is so great for a lighting designer. So that process sounds collaborative to me. Yeah. It is, and we're really so. is with Joe. You have to be in the room. There's no way around it. You have to be there. If you're going to tech on, say, a Tuesday, you better be in the whole week prior because it is su- such specific. It's, it's dance, what he does, and, and his storytelling. So you, you've got to know the piece really, really well. Yeah. And, um, and he's great on visuals. He's, he's one of those directors who will just, in the, like, 2 in the morning, he'll find something and, like, scan it and send it to you. And he goes, this is what the show is. I'm like, oh, get it now. But that's how he communicates to us. And it's always his shows. I mean, we did Gypsy. And you know, Gypsy, you got to have a big set. But majority of the shows are driven by light. And he loves light. 
It sounds like a fabulous uh, sort of relationship and collaboration to have. And he's a dear friend too, which makes makes it makes even it even better. better. Yeah. And uh, we've been through everything together. You know, we, you know, every situation really wonderful. Where we fully supported too. Like, what what are we doing here? Where's the rest of the staff? It's like <laughs> it's, it's just us. And R and J has been such a great. I mean, we've taken it to to Tokyo and translated into Japanese and you know like I said we just the most recent one we did was the celebration of Signature's 25th anniversary it was very hard to figure out how to do in the round because it was a, basically a performance dance piece so that was and it actually didn't end up being hard because it was still the same vernacular it was really my job to figure out how to give everybody the same experience so I was still like oh it still looks like my staging how are you going to light it for the people over there like, but uh, um, thanks. the storyline under it all is escape and accepting who you are. So three of the characters end up not changing and they end up leaving at the end of the show. And when we originally did it, the one boy is left basically trapped. And that was 1994, 95 maybe. So we've been doing that version for many years and that's the one that's in print. And then um, all the Matthew Shepard things happened and because it does play because, and it, it plays this way. I'm not saying it's this way. It's four men, one's playing Juliet, one's playing Rome. So, so you could interpret homosexuality, but that's not the intent. But when you see the show, you kind of feel that way, and Joe recognized that. And so when we redid it, he changed the ending of the show, which was, like, so touching because the climate had changed, and also Joe's view about being gay had changed. And instead of leaving the boy in the middle of the stage, he grabs the red silk, throws it over the shoulder, grabs the Shakespeare, and he escapes out of the theater. And the stage is left lit. And that little thing, oh my God. The two of us were, I'm almost yeah. crying out. The two of us were bawling in the theater when it happened. Because it's like, oh, we had, we had that view. And it's changed in 15 years. Then now that now he's ha actually asked them to do a second reprint of the script, and now that's, that's the version. To have that he, as the end. Yeah, he, wants, he doesn't want the trapped version anymore. So, so that's probably one of the most collaborative. Ex that's actually two great extremes. Joe is the most collaborative director I work with. Thing. You know, working with Jerry, and Jerry's background, he's a dancer. And doesn't mean he isn't as uh, visually. He's, he's another person that will, he loves to go through uh, magazines and cut out and show you, you know, inspiration that way. Um, but he really lets you just kind of, he wants you to go off, show it to him, love it, move on. That's the kind of the process you go through with him. And, he, and again, he's a choreographer, so it's very much based in dance. Awesome. No. Seriously. I mean, so what about everything else? What about everything else? What do we Every, everything else. Everything else. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What else is there? You're talking well, about you know, it's, you know, so you've been doing this for a while, and you've seen a lot of technology come and go. Mm -hmm. mm. What, What's out there now that excites you? What do you find frustrating about working in an, in an artistic medium that's so heavily reliant on technology. I think the biggest challenge I have right now is LED as a theatrical designer because I know the energy efficiency of it. I know the uh, maintenance issue of it. All positives. I don't like the way shows look. I don't like the way people look under LED. Now, the cruise line, that we, uh, the two new cruise ships, we, you know, they were trying to save energy. The whole rig was LED. Thank God the spots weren't. I don't even know if they make an LED spot yet, but the spots weren't, so at least we were able to stop it. Give them time. It just, <laughs> but I also look at, my eye is different than the eye of someone who's 20 years old. They've experienced a completely different life. The activity that we see every day, the chroma, the feeling of light has changed from when I was young. You know, when I started, you still did color theory. You sat down. And you figured out, because everything was incandescent, it was all the same starting point, and you had to figure out how to color balance. You had to figure out how to make white with the rig you had. And, you know, I, I was on the cusp. I mean, I think the Genesis tour was, what, 82, maybe? Oh, which one? The first one the that first the VL1s one. went out on, oh. which is our first yeah. moving light. I, I think you're right. I think, I think it was. It was around there. So I was just starting when moving lights were just arriving. And then, so that was a vernacular. But even the arc source, I still don't mind. You can manipulate that mm -hmm. better than you can an LED. There's also, when I tech shows with, with LED in it, I can't work as long 
And I thought, well, maybe I'm getting older. But my programmer who works with me also had the same experience. It's a constant on your eye, and your eye tires quicker. You know, uh, I used to be able to, you know, a non-union show, I would just work and work and work and work until somebody told me to get out of the theater just to get it done. Now, with these shows where there's a lot of LED in the rig, I last about eight hours. I just don't see the same way anymore, and I have to stop. And I do Give your eyes a break. Yeah, there's a lot of fatigue. And I also... I love chroma. You, you go see one of my shows. I love saturated colors, but there's a it's different with LED. There's an edge to it that I don't find pleasing, and I'm always working around trying to soften how it feels. Well, you know, yeah, unless you're using one of the really advanced fixtures, you've got three or four wavelengths of light you're working with, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. You know, if you look at the output of the fixture, there's you know three or four spikes for the wavelength of that LED source. So, I mean, I wonder if that's part of the problem. You know, I think for me, it's just that I miss the days of incandescence. I miss, you know, the original, if you remember the original chorus line lighting design, you know, the Mondrian patterns and everything just had a warmth. There's a, a, and it's funny when you do see, and it's more in plays than musicals, when you do see a show that is all incandescent, there is a warmth about that show that doesn't exist anymore. And it made me so sad because Signature, down in D.C., kind of on my uh, suggestion, uh, just bought their first set of LED moving lights. And we go down there before that, and you would be mixing incandescent in color. And the shows just felt like an old-school show. Mm. But, you know, it is what it is. But if you're asking me, you know, the challenges I have, that's one of them. I wish I haven't seen a product out there that duplicates true incandescent yet. And I think if somebody does develop that, and I don't know inherently in how the light works if that'll ever be able to happen. Though there is something funny. I, I mentioned my, my counterpart, Nagi-san. He, I wanted uh, that whole, the whole theater is LED with the exception of the moving lights, and that's the way they wanted it. There's a lot of uh, energy regulations since the earthquake that and the sense. tsunami. Mm-hmm. So we had to reduce by 30% the draw on the theater. But I still wanted I wanted bare bulbs. I wanted to see the filament, and he, God bless him, he had a guy who had a guy who had a guy, and I went over went over in August, he goes, oh, I want to show you something. And he screwed it in, and it was a warm, glowing light bulb, and he had found a guy that lined up the tiniest little LEDs on a wire, like this big, and made... He made a light bulb? They made bulb? them, and we have, wow. now have 40 custom ones, and when you turn them on at about 50... And I think, I don't know if it's just the, the LED small, you don't get the feel of it. It feels like a glowing light bulb. And I was like, oh. I said to Nagasan, this is great for our show, but you should find a way people buy this product. Yes, yeah, seriously. I'm guessing the per unit cost on those was, yeah, it was probably like a little pricey. unbelievable. Yeah. Well, yeah, but if you have mass manufacturing, I don't know. I but don't yeah, know. no, I was amazed that it just felt like a warm glow. Oh, that's Literally awesome. put it, But it was these little tiny, he made the wire like an old Edison squirrel mm-hmm. cage. And he went, that's really impressive. And I was, I was, and I didn't even ask for it. I just said, I want a warm light bulb. Right. And his smart mind went, oh, well, I, we can't give you a screw in incandescent, but how about this? Wow. But technology, you know, I, what I'm amazed in, and it's uh, such a quick tool now, and I'm getting up to speed with it with, you know, one of my programmers, but it's just the integration in video mapping and how lighting can kind of steal from that. I find that all very intriguing. How have you used that? I created an element for the show in Tokyo um, <laughs> where the choice is between lighting or an LED product and creating content-driven media to run through it to achieve the same goal to save a lot of time. And so what was going to be kind of programmed became an LED-driven lighting element. Okay. <laughs> as far as we can get. Was that something that you played back using the console or yes. played back via media? Well, uh, we got a raccoon that ties into the Grand MA. A what? Raccoon? I don't know what that is. Raccoon is hippo. Oh. Hippo, and then the raccoon's the little mini version of the hippo. Oh, I see. And they named them all different animals. Trust me. <laughs> Explain that to the Japanese. Raccoon? Raccoon? Why is it raccoon? <laughs> Panda bear. And I worked with my video friends, and we just created a whole bunch of content files for it to uh, do what we wanted it to do. Awesome. That's really cool. It is. And there's, I could see there's being more. You're seeing it more in what's the hog item that just came out. You can basically 
Well, EOS has had it for two years plus. Yeah. No, no, EOS has had it for almost three years. Yeah. And Hog just added it. Yeah. And MA is still not done it, and I think they're going to have to. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that we had to get the raccoon on it and add on to it. I'm, there's I mean, another one. There's a new version of the MA coming up that we kind of got sampled. Does it have it? Maybe. Well, I mean, I mean, at this point, it's yeah. almost like, guys, you have to they do have this. To. You know, if you want to keep getting these contracts on the, you know, on these large shows, you'd, you'd best add that to your yeah. console. Yeah. Interesting thing, Mike. Main programmer Zach, uh, he's also a multimedia programmer. He like did War Horse and Jury's mm-hmm. Incident, but then he does lighting also. He, he's just saying everybody's it's this overlap is still being fought between people. Of yeah, how whose job is this now going to be? How is it going to interplay? And right. So that's the interesting. Thing. I'm waiting to see what happens. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I see that being more as a conversation that happens on a show by show basis, not industry wise. Well, the company we, we should fighting be able for to who do wants to get the equipment is the thing, mm-hmm. right? And honestly, the team I have is so great because the people I end up working with, like Richie Tyndall and Zach, that they're designers in their own right. So I and my I feel like, unfortunately, when we tech shows, like 90% of my job is to stay involved with the director and things like that. And this team over here knows what they're supposed to be doing. And I'll go away and come back and be like, that's 10 times better than I thought it was going to be. Great check. Next. Right. You know? mm-hmm. Well, it's having that designer eye. With the people that you work with so that they can actually, and knowing, I think we had this conversation once before with another person where it was like having them almost know what it is you're looking for anyway. It's like, so they're there with you. They're working. being engaged. Absolutely. There's so many folks that I, you know, who I have worked but not worked with again. Not that every job is going to be your passion project. But still be engaged in the project. Right. So that's a big one for me, you know. There, there are times I wish designers would leave the headset mic open so I could hear what the director was saying. Yeah. So I could at least have a preview of what they're about to say. <laughs> what they're about to change on you. We actually just had this conversation. <laughs> we have a, my little Christmas party this past weekend. And my a couple of my assistants were there. And Denise was there with her husband, who's a sound designer, who actually, I'm sorry, not a husband, boyfriend, uh, who not I'd never husband. met before. Husband-like boyfriend. Husband-like boyfriend. Very nice guy. <laughs> but Denise, somehow headsets came up. And I was like, I just got a new headset. She goes, why did you buy a new headset? You're not even on headset anymore. And I realize as I've gotten older, I'm not really on headset Mm-mm. that much anymore. I'm so engaged with the room. And I, and for me, especially when you're doing a show, I, I realize I don't want to be on headset anymore because I'm missing all what they want. So when you have some good people over there, just I get back on, obviously, to do stuff. But I end sure. up standing and talking to my programmer versus headsetting it all the time now. Right. I just never thought of it. And she's like, you know, you're not on headset anymore. What are you talking about? You In fact, we that. like when you're not there because we talk about you. <laughs> I miss headset. That's, that's, it, it is tough uh, in some theaters because, you know, if, if, if your programmer is in the balcony and everyone else is in the orchestra, yeah. it's like you wish you could have a private conversation yeah. about the thing, but you just can't. Yeah, they all, anytime I'm programming, they're always next to me. And then they find, they have, part of their job is to, they know what I like, so then they go up with a second console on their own time. And clean up the show up there. But anytime the director's room, I rule the whole team is sitting with me. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. It's just we're a team. This is us supporting that person. We I always need think to be it, here. Yeah. My my thought about the whole process anyway, but especially in theater, is I'm an extension of the director. You guys are an extension of me. They're extension. It's like we're all kind of working up the chain to give this guy or gal exactly what's in their head, mm-hmm. and that can only happen if we're all like a big team. And you have to think I'm funny. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't work for me. Because <laughs> I am the funniest person. <laughs> I don't know. I think you're funny. I know. <laughs> it's right, a burden. All right. I mean, we, we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything that you wish for the business? I mean, the, the business is huge. The business is television and theater and special events and corporate theater and uh, amusement parks. But is there anything that you wish for the, for the, for the industry or a part of the industry? I miss and wish there was some kind of support for young voices and programs, not necessarily that you would all of a sudden do a workshop in New York, but I think it's even younger than that. And I don't know if this is just the way the world is going, that um, musicals aren't what I remember them to be. I wish there were more people writing. There are no new, that's wrong. There are new voices, but not, not the volume that there used to be. And I think that's a combination of when I was in high school, the arts being cut out of the schools, people 
moving on to film and television who possibly could have stayed in New York and written for theater, but they can't make a living doing it. There aren't the, you know, there's some great programs out there. The O'Neill Festival, you know, and Signature has its new works project where three year, three teams or single people are in development of new musicals down there. And those, those are great, but they're few and far between. And, you know, and we were so reliant on uh, a known entity to create a show, whether that be uh, a movie or and books are fine. But I, I just wish there were new there. There are more stories. We haven't tapped out the stories of the human culture yet. And I wish that people were writing more. And that benefits all of us. It benefits in the business. It benefits the culture. Um, but, yeah, that's what I wish. I mean, I feel like I mean, everyone always says it. There were so many shows you can see it diminished since the 50s but even when i was growing up there were, there were so many tours coming into boston it's wonderful that emerson has taken over those theaters but those used to be full of shows when i was growing oh, up yeah. on the road and here too a lot was depressing sorry <laughs> there's still great work going there on is there, wonderful right? work <laughs> well i go back to actually just to kind of take that to another thought is you look, and we do have our regional theaters and some government-supported mm -hmm. arts here, but if you look at, like, the National in London and their season yeah. and how diverse it is and how many young people are writing there and mm -hmm. they're getting their opportunities and, you know, everyone thinks of the National. Look at this, look at this. Yeah, but there were a whole bunch of other stuff that happened at the National, and I'm not insulting anybody, that weren't that, but they were. the work was still put up, right. you know? And even looking at the Kennedy Center, you know, they used to do a lot more work than they do now. Now it's a roadhouse that has, you know, two shows a year. And that's sad. That's that Kennedy Center was created to be the showplace of the arts in America. And in my opinion, I hope I don't insult anybody listening to this, it's a roadhouse, you know? On that note, uh, go to signature.org if you want to support new artists. There you go. There you go. You're welcome, Eric Schaefer. Go to signature.org. Where can people learn more about you online, or where can they contact you? Uh, www.chrisleeld.com. Okay. And what will people find there? Uh, lots of pretty pictures. <laughs> My career and a brief summary. Um, I'm not a self-promoter. I, like I said at the beginning of this interview, I don't even know how I got here. I just kind of just keep on showing. I'm my, I'm my father's son. I just keep on showing up every day and doing the work. And I've had no plan. I wanted to do something. Somehow 25 years later, I'm still doing it. At times, I like look back. I don't even remember how I survived in New York the first five years. So there's not much to say other than, you know, I like shows. I'm very happy. I get to work with my friends. All right. That was beautiful. Yeah. And I think we'll end it there. Yeah. Guys, thanks for having me. Thanks very much, Chris. <laughs> it's nice to talk to you. Good to meet you. <laughs> this has been the Casting Light Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Big thanks to our guest, Chris Lee. Thanks to my co-host, Teresa Unfried. And of course, thanks to you for downloading and listening. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Merritt. Keep safe on site and have a good show.